0: Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US.
1: So hello and welcome to the Microbial Bioinformatics podcast. Nabil, Lee and myself are your hosts for today. And we're joined again by Professor Mark Pallon, who's a Professor of Microbial Genomics in the University of East Anglia and a research leader at the Quadrum Institute. We're continuing our trip down memory lane and reflecting on some of the exciting bioinformatics moments and lessons learned for bioinformatics in the 21st century. So let's continue our conversation with Mark.
2: Now then something strange happened. I'd kept in touch with Nick Lyman over several years in fact, it even helped me set up my server when I arrived in Belfast. And I'd applied to get funding to build uh, more databases on the back of our efforts with Colibase and and, and I'd had a smart guy called Roy Chowdhury been working on, on this Colibase for many years. And I got this funding for a project that we called XBase, which was to apply that sort of thing across the board to all sorts of genomes. And so I was looking for a smart bioinformatician and I said, to nick i said look i've got five years funding here why don't you break out of your medical career and come and do a phd Uh, you've got plenty of time in those five years you come on the payroll of staff so you wouldn't have to pay phd fees only like 500 for the whole thing and you could return to medicine with a phd and it turned out that he he said well now is the right time to jump out of medicine because the uk government made a complete a mess of career progression for junior medics at that time they'd had far more people in training than they provided jobs for and so nick said yeah all right so i persuaded him to come and work for me uh, again and so he moved over to to birmingham and just around the same time uh, that next generation sequencing uh, or high throughput sequencing as we might call it perhaps more accurately came into view and so that was that was a a really exciting time as we suddenly we started looking at at moore's law applied to sequencing and thinking what in 2025 you know which is when i'm 65 you know how much did it cost to sequence a genome and we i remember we got a ruler we said oh it cost 25 pence and we were just joking it can't be true that you could sequence a bacterial genome for 25 pence but I think we will be able to sequence a bacterial genome you know, for 25 pence in, in, in a few years' time. At the moment, it's it's down to a few pounds. But we were there at the beginning, and we got involved through a collaboration with George Weinstock. I was still talking to all my clinical microbiology colleagues. I still had a clinical academic role there. Uh, and we had particular problems in an organism called Acinetobacter baumanii in the hospital. And I said, maybe we could track the spread of this thing by sequencing its genome and see if how they relate to each other, sort of draw... A, an evolutionary tree of the strains within the species that come out of our hospital. It might work. It might not. Let's just have a go. And so we did that. George sequenced three isolates. We were able to call out some snips between them. And it was the first paper looking at gram-negative genomic epidemiology. A very smart person called Sharon Peacock, who'd actually been on the same scheme that Gordon Dugan had done for PhDs for medics, had actually got into the Sanger and pipped us to the post doing genomic epidemiology of Staph aureus, they had a paper out, but we were the first ones to do it on a gram-negative. And we ended it with three, but it was proof of principle. And we, we then went on and did a much larger study a few years later where we, we tracked the spread of a, an outbreak strain and sequenced, I think over 70 genomes from patients and so forth. But that was a, a, a thing where we started to get into outbreak genomics and looking at what um, we could deduce from genome sequencing using that approach. And it just so happened around 2010 or so, this new wave of progress came in where it wasn't just next generation sequencing, it was benchtop sequencing became a possibility. And three platforms came to market around the same time. So there was the 454, 454 Junior, that Senexa sequencing had transmogrified into Illumina sequencing and they had the MySeq. And then there was this newcomer called IronTorrent Torrent that came on and IronTorrent Torrent, launched a European-wide competition saying that if you win this competition, you can have an iron torrent for free. And, and it belongs to you as an individual, not your university, you as an individual. So I'll give it a go. And I, I said that we could use iron torrent to sequence our bacteria and and, uh, and track the spread of this deadly multi-drug resistant pathogen. And they swallowed my blarney and gave me an iron torrent. I won an iron torrent. I went to Lausanne to, to collect the award, and I got an iron torrent. I said to Nick, you know, nobody's ever used this thing before. See if you can work out how to, to handle the data coming off of it. And so he started playing around. He said, yeah, I've, I think I've got the pipelines working. And just at that time, there's this terrible outbreak in 2011 in Germany of E. coli 14 h 4 H4, sugar toxin E. coli in Germany. A group in Germany collaborated with the Beijing Genomics Institute, BGI as it was called, and they had got an iron torrent, and they sequenced the outbreak strain on an iron torrent, and released the data into the public domain. And I and so I said to to Nick, I said, look, that data's there. Have a play. And he I went off on holiday, and he had a play. And he, I came back and said, oh, something marvellous has happened. I I analysed that data. I released it into the public domain through through this new communication tool called Twitter. And loads and loads of bioinformaticians have have all said, yeah, they're interested. And they've reanalyzed the data. They look for antimicrobial resistance. They've looked at how close it is to other strains. It's like a a crowdsourced analysis. Wow, that's that's really interesting. I said, but we're academics. We're not interested in our profile on Twitter. We need a peer-reviewed publication on this. How are we going to turn it into a peer-reviewed publication? I thought, well. We could write this up as a letter to the Lancet. So I got some other of the bioinformaticians involved in it, and we started writing it up as a letter to the Lancet. Around the same time, I contacted the guy in Germany who was heading up their efforts to analyse the, the, the outbreak and control the outbreak, a guy, a guy called Martin Epfelbacher, and, and said, you know, we know a lot about E. coli. We know a lot about genomes and bioinformatics. If you need any help, let us know. And he came back and he said, I think we're all right. And I thought, okay, well, that's, that's not an opportunity that's gone. I suppose we'll leave it. And so I set up an opportunity with John Wayne, who was working at the at Public Health England. I said, we can analyse one of the British isolates from this outbreak. And why don't we do it on the three different platforms available to us? So the, the iron toil, which we've got, the 454 four junior, which you've got, and we could probably get a MySeq as well. And so we did that and we did a little analysis. And, and this is where Nick Lohman came to his own. He went away and he did all the analysis and he came back pretty much with the other perf- yeah, ready paper, publication ready paper. Uh, which we published, and we showed effectively that both the iron torrent and the 454 had this problem with homopolymers, their accuracy wasn't quite good enough, whereas the, ion, whereas the, the MySeq was much, much better. And that paper has now been cited over 1,500 times. It's my second most highly cited publication. And the Illumina reps used it as a way of flogging their MySeq for, for the years that were to come. But While all that was kind of bubbling away, I suddenly got this phone call at 10 o'clock one morning by Martin Eppelvacker saying, look, I want to talk to you about this genome analysis and this paper we're trying to get put together. Can I speak to you at midday? I said, you can speak to me now if you like. He said, no, no, but we do need your help. And so I waited two hours till he phoned me back at midday. And he said, oh, they'd sent their paper in to the New England Journal of Medicine and it had been... uh, okay in some aspects, but the the reviewers didn't like the way that the genome analysis had been done by, the, by their colleagues at BGI, and they didn't like the way the paper had been written up. And so could we help? And I said, well, I can help you write the paper. And I got this guy, Nick Lohman, who could redo the genome analysis. And he said, yeah, there's a snag there. And I said, why? Well, he said, well, it's Tuesday today. We have to get this back to New England Journal by the end of Thursday. I said, I accept your challenge. We analysed the genome. I rewrite the paper for you uh, in less than 48 hours. I said to Nick, I've given you a challenge. Nick, go away and analyse this genome and weave in all your stuff about the open source genomics as well. And we did it. And so we wrote the paper uh, and it went into New England Journal. I said, the condition of me doing this is I'm a senior author. And Nick Lohman is one of the first authors, uh, joint first authors. And they said, yeah, all right. And we got the paper accepted in New England Journal. So that was one of those things where... We were in the right place. So we'd lined up the things, you know. I'd, I'd won the Iron Torrent. We were. I had managed to recruit Nick Loman. We got Nick Loman to analyse the Iron Torrent data. So we just lined up. So when that opportunity came, we could seize it. And that's the, the, that saying of of Pasteur of, of chance favouring the prepared mind. You know, if you if you've got the wherewithal and an opportunity arises, you can you can jump on it.
0: I have a couple of comments. I mean, not really questions because I I agree it's an old it's an older story, but it it's a keystone part of of our history really now. We couldn't have done like all this without it. I came into foodborne infectious diseases in 2011. And this was like, I mean, there were a couple of things going on. Like there was a cantaloupe outbreak in the US, but like immediately there was this E. coli outbreak. And then Nick posted on Twitter. (laughs) From my perspective, I just thought that was just so weird. Like I did not know how to Handled Twitter. I think around then I went ahead and signed up for an account, but didn't do anything with it. And it was just fun from the U.S. side, at least from my perspective, just to to touch my toe in this and watch what was happening.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it was it was a very exciting time. I mean, it was a horrible time because it was an absolutely horrible outbreak, and there were multiple deaths, and there were deaths, you know, as we sometimes see with COVID, and in otherwise fit and healthy young people who just happened to. Being infected by a pathogen, it was it was terrible. Uh, uh,
0: yeah, I can't underscore that enough. But it it was awful. I feel like one other thing that maybe you didn't touch on as much was how much the geno- genomics played in figuring out what the pathotype of this thing was, because it was such a complex pathotype,
2: yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So the interesting thing was that we going back to that statement I said uh, seek simplicity and distrust it. People working on uh, Type 3 secretion in E. coli on the Lee encoded system would say, well, it's always present in sugar toxin, sh- sugar toxigenic E. coli. It, it's part of that repertoire of virulence factors. It needs to cause disease. And therefore, it's very important. And we'd always say that that's why we had to study it. And then this thing turned up. It didn't, people have been kind of categorizing E. coli into different pathovars. And this thing sort of straddled the boundaries. It was kind of sugar toxigenic. It it had some of the things that you have in interagrative E. coli, but it didn't have a Lee-encoded type 3 secretion system. So it basically blew out the water, this simplification that we'd made of, oh, yeah, this is part of it. So it was, again, a very illuminating thing that we always fall into this typological thinking that we can nail things down by simple categories. And then it turns out, Nature and evolution doesn't play by those rules. It, it just mixes and mashes and, uh, and, match, uh, and does all sorts of things. So it's kind of exciting.
1: So this was a lot of fun for me because I was a doctoral student at the time working on Entera E. coli. And my feeling after reading a lot of the literature leading up into this was people's opinion. It had become incredibly dogmatic about pathotypes, particularly oh, yeah. Entera exactly. E. coli. Yeah paper after paper just saying you know if you didn't have the lee we didn't care you know it was it was it out of the
2: water and uh, yeah. it's a lesson that you have to learn and learn again i mean uh, around that time i wrote a book called the rough guide to evolution and there were all these quotes that people had said about darwin this and darwin that you know darwin and marx and all that and, and you scratch beneath the surface and say, well, where is the evidence trail for that? And you find that actually there isn't one. It's not true. In fact, there was a quote that was attributed to Darwin about it was not the fittest, but the, the, the organisms that are most uh, adapted to the environment that survived, something along those lines that Darwin never said. But there's a in the US, there's a, a, an august institution, I think it's on the West Coast somewhere, that, that had that. Engraved in in a marble, basically, when it was shown, Darwin oh, never said that, they looked totally silly. So, you know, you always have to question the evidence trail. And it goes back to the early days of genome sequencing, where when you say that this protein coding gene encodes a protein that does this, where's your evidence trail? And often you get this very messy situation where someone would do a homology search of that protein, one of the domains in that protein would have to something, and then that thing that's had something that's got a hit, had a hit to something else but they didn't actually share a domain in common. And you just get this misannotation, all sorts of problems like that.
1: One thing I'll also add that was really exciting was as it was rolling out on Twitter, you had rather than as a student, you normally saw this, you normally saw results at this detail, at this level of of scientific rigor being presented to peer-reviewed papers. And then all of a sudden you're reading about the the interaggregative, like fimbrel genes on Kat Holt's blog that she did with 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 Nico Petty, and then you're reading the the tree on someone else's website, and then someone's tweeting stuff about comparison with all of the existing. I think David Studholm comparing it with all the other E. coli existing E. coli genomes. It was a, a crazy time.
2: Yeah, and, of- and it, it did it. It set the precedent for what came afterwards in terms of outbreak control open science you know putting up preprints rather than waiting until a thing's been accepted in a journal and obviously nick and you and andrew page and many others have adopted those approaches during the covid uh, pandemic uh, and i think that that the event that nick kickstarted way back in 2011 it has borne fruit uh, big time since then in, in, in all these initiatives
1: i can't speak for andrew and nick obviously but for me this this outbreak reading about it sticks in the back of my mind when approaching covid
2: So a little while after we'd had that New England Journal paper come out, I I said to uh, our collaborators in Germany, who we'd never actually met face-to-face, I said, look, we'll come over and see you. So we went over there and we shared some champagne with them. And I said to them, what we've got to do, though, is show people we're not just a one-trick pony here. What can we do now that convinces people that we've got something to say and, and that we're cool guys? And we said, what are our unique selling points? And I said, well, we're pretty good at this kind of... Genome analysis stuff and bioinformatics, I suppose. And and they said, Well, we've got a freezer full of fecal samples. Uh, So I said, Oh, okay, I've got an idea. Why don't we just sequence the fecal samples? Why don't we sequence (laughs) your fecal samples that you've got and see if we can detect the outbreak strain in those fecal samples? You know, it, it could be a kind of diagnostic or clinical metagenomics. Why don't we try that? I said, It's a bit of a long shot. And what I thought to myself was, Well, if the dogma up until that time, again, one of these dogmas was that E. coli was a bit player in the, in the, in the gut microbiome, you know, less than a percent. So I said, you know, we're not gonna see, you know, it'll be the bacteroidetes and the Firmicutes making up most of this, but we'll have a look. And if we, even if we detect the sugar toxin gene, that's still a hit, isn't it? It's you achieving a diagnosis by metagenomics. Nick Lohman went away and did it, looked at it, came back and said, I've got 20 fold coverage of the outbreak strain genome. In this one, I've got fifty-fold coverage of the outbreak strain tube. And what turned out to have happened against our expectations is, although in the normal gut microbiome, E. coli is a bit player, during these episodes of infection, it undergoes a massive bloom and takes over the microbiome, and becomes the predominant organism. And so, we were able to get the whole genome of the outbreak strain from these analyses and established that you could do diagnostic metagenomics on the human gut microbiome. And in fact, I met David Relman shortly afterwards, who was a key player in the, in the gut uh, human gut microbiome project. And he said, I have to hand it to you. We spent a lot of time thinking about methods and protocols and getting it so that we can analyze the healthy gut microbiome. But you've just come in here and said, why don't we use this as an approach to diagnosing disease? And none of us have kind of thought of that yet. So hats off to you. So so that was, that was cool. And around the same time, I thought, because we'd had that success with metagenomics, a guy came up to me who I'd worked with, who was working with, called Dave Minikin, and he said, oh, look, we do. We want to do some ancient DNA work on TB. I've got some bison bones that go back over 10,000 years. I think it's got TB in it. I said, well, that sounds a very precious sample. I said, I'd be happy to have a play uh, and do it by metagenomics. I'm not mucking around with PCR and stuff, but if we can detect it by metagenomics, that'd be cool. And so I said, you know, is there another sample that we could we could analyze that would be more less precious and he said oh yes I I, I, we we can get access to some some well some some mummy samples some samples from 200 year old mummies from Hungary and he put me in touch with a guy called Mark Spiegelman who is a a surgeon who actually sampled these 200 year old mummies using a fiber optic endoscope and, and took samples under sterile conditions I said well we'll take some of that material and we'll just I said to my postdoc, go and just extract some DNA and sequence it. If we get a couple of reads of TB, that will be something, you know. But I'm not expecting much out of this. She went away, she came back and said, well, we've got a sevenfold coverage of the TB genome. What? 200-year-old sample and you've got complete genome sequencing? Yep. And so we went back and we got more of these samples. And we ended up getting over a dozen of these 200-year-old genomes out. And again, it was one of those moments where it overturned all your assumptions because the bioinformatician, Martin Sargent, who was doing the analysis, he said, I, I was having trouble trying to work out what strain this was. What's the closest strain? But then I realised that in the pipeline I was using, it was saying that if a thing wasn't represented, at position by a certain uh, 70%, it was just masking that. But when I remove that mask, it turns out that in many positions here, there's 50% of one thing and 50% of another. And so what we've got is two strains mixed together, closely related strains, but two strains mixed together. So what? You can't have TB twice. You can't get infected with two strains. You only get it once. You know, some cross over you. Unlucky. Doesn't make much sense. But I went back and searched PubMed and it turned out that actually there was a, a literature that says you can have multiple strains of TB. And it turned out that back then in the 18th century, the majority of the patients we analyzed had more than one strain. And when you think about it and you overturn your assumptions, if everyone was living in crowded accommodation and everyone was coughing over each other all the time, why on earth would they only get infected once? You know That was very exciting. And around the same time, an archeologist who I used to have a drink with in the bar in Birmingham had been talking to me and I said to him, why don't we do some ancient DNA analysis with you? And he finally came to me and he said, yeah, why don't we, um, I want you to do some of this stuff. And I thought, oh, you'll give me a, a pharaoh's finger or or something like that, something really exciting. I said, what have you got? He said, I've got some mud, some sediments from, from beneath the sea, kind of uh, from a Neolithic transition. And I'd like you to look for sheep and goat DNA, because that would be the first sign of the Neolithic transition. If you can find those in environmental DNA, and that would be really cool. And at the time, I was moving to Warwick, and there I met a guy called Robin Allaby, who was a plant microbiology, uh, a plant uh, genomes person, but he also done some work on ancient DNA. And I said, look, I'm a bit busy. Do you want to take this on? He took it on and he came back and said, well, I haven't found the sheep and the goat, but I found wheat. And wheat is as much a sign of the Neolithic transition as sheep and goats in this context. So this is pretty cool. I said, wow, OK. And he, he wrote it up and he managed to get it published in Science. So... Uh, we got a, a science paper on presence of wheat in the British Isles 8,000 years before present, which is considerably earlier than everyone uh, suspected. That's about 2,000 years earlier than suspected. And, and that that suggested that there were these sophisticated social networks linking the Neolithic front in southern Europe to the Mesolithic peoples of northern Europe. So it was kind of, that was pretty cool. And then finally, around, in terms of metagenomics, I got into the chicken gut microbiome at around the same time, did a first analysis of that. And a Martin Sergeant who was working for me, he, he said, "Oh, I've I've done all this metagen." I said, "We'll do some of it by 16S, S, but we'll do a bit of shotgun." He did the shotgun. And he said, "Oh, I've done this kind of cool thing." I said, "What's that?" He said, "I've assembled genomes from this shotgun metagenomics data." And this was before people came up with the term MAGs. This was back in two thousand and twelve. Uh, he said, "Yeah, I, I've kind of binned the reads using the." tetranucleotide frequencies and and i've got all these genomes i said oh that's pretty cool so we wrote that up and that became a very highly cited paper and then to cut a long story short i'm still doing the same sort of stuff on the chicken gut today and what has happened is that we're discovering so many new species that i thought i've got to name all these new species it's not good enough just to call them bin 28 and that took me into a whole other line of work of naming microbes which then led me into getting involved with the WHO to name the SARS-CoV variants of concern. So I've been, been busy uh, with these lines of work over, over recent years. We've had a couple of other metagenomic kind of forays. We looked at the um, critically ill patients in intensive care unit, and we we found a similar thing to what we'd seen in, in that E. coli outbreak, that during a, well during these abnormal episodes, you get blooms of pathogens so we were seeing multi-drug resistant pathogens coming up at 80 or 90% of the biomass in patients in the intensive care unit who'd received multiple antibiotics, which again, I couldn't believe it when I first heard it. I thought, you should, yeah, they'll increase a bit. but They won't take over. But in some of them, they were over 90%. You know, the whole microbiome is wiped out and one organism takes over. So we found lots of interesting things uh, through metagenomics.
1: So I just wanted to ask a final question about what is the future directions then, since you've seen so much change over time? So, what have you seen or read recently that reminds you of those early days of something new and exciting in the same way microbiology was new and fresh? What was what's cutting edge today, or what do you see as the the next foray for us as a field?
2: Okay, so what I have been surprised again, and it's those moments of surprise, the things you live for. When we started sequencing the chicken gut. We discovered 800 new species well over 600 completely new species and uh, several that hadn't been named and i was just like this is the most abundant vertebrate gut microbiome in, 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 in on the planet you know more chickens than humans such a commonplace setting but we're seeing this remarkable microbial biodiversity undiscovered uh, and if you run Typically, we've, we've done this with pig, we've done it with horse. You take a, a new context, samples from that new context, and you run them through pipelines like Kraken that compare them against what we already know. You end up with up to 80% of the reads being unassigned. Some people have used the term funk for function unknown genes. Uh, I would argue that here it, it's not just function unknown genes, it's funk in a different sense. They're phylogenetically unknown genes, funk with a pH, because that we can't even assign them to a taxon we don't even know where they come from and it just hit, it shows us that we are really uh, there's this huge ocean of discovery out there because we've we're up i don't know 1 or 2% in terms of the, the number of microbial species that we have actually genome sequenced and characterized and so there is huge potential to discover new things. We can, we will discover new forms of life. We'll discover new branches. They're still discovering new phyla, bacterial phyla. There is so much more to discover just through what you might say is, is a, a brute force stamp collecting of, of just sequencing, lots and lots of things. And 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 obviously we are approaching the stage where we can do the sequencing definitively and properly, where we can get single contact genomes um, out of metagenomes by using long reads and and binning approaches. So the voyage has really only just begun. I mean, we're 2% of the way there in terms of of really just mapping the the, the genomes and understanding the genomes of the microbial world, let alone understanding all their functions. So, yeah, the, the future is very bright, I think.
1: All right. And on that note, I think we'll draw it to a close. I want to thank our guest, Professor Mark Palin, for joining us today. We've been talking about some of the bioinformatics highlights from his career, gleaning some advice and thoughts for the rest of us. We've gone all the way from the start all through all the right way through to the current day and a little bit into the future. And so that's all the time we have for. And we'll see you next time on the MicroBinfi podcast. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like
0: this podcast, Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at MicroBinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.